You're listening to Living the Dream Acting, a podcast for actors and artists from stage to screen who are taking action on living their dreams. And now here's your host, Christina Kipper. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me today. I want to mention some good news. Literally, John Krasinski's Some Good News YouTube channel. I've mentioned on the podcast before that I love The Office. I love all the wonderful character actors that were a part of that show. It's my go-to when I need to stay positive and stay entertained and just watch some incredible comic timing and creative characters. And, you know, anything John Krasinski does, I'm interested in checking it out and following it anyway. But during this time when things are so difficult, he just has this wonderful show on YouTube and it really is focused on the good news, what's happening that's positive. Every time I watch it, I'm laughing. Mostly there's lots of crying, good crying, but still crying. And this latest episode featured an office cast reunion. I won't give away any details about that, but you've got to check it out. I'll put the link to some good news in the show notes. Today, I'd like to introduce you to poet and traditional storyteller Claire Obermark. She's new to the podcast, and what she does as a traditional storyteller is just fascinating. I've talked about meditating on the podcast before, and I have to say that Claire's voice was so calming, so relaxing, not only in the interview, but when I've seen her live and uh, participated in some of her storytelling events. It was, it's just a very soothing voice. And I have to say, when we were having this conversation, there were actually several moments when I became so entranced by her voice that I forgot my next question and lost my train of thought. So <laughs> luckily, I have the ability to edit those moments out. But I hope you enjoy this. I hope you learn some new things. And I can't wait to share Claire with you. So let's jump right into the episode and I'll be here when you get done. Miss Claire Obermark, thank you for joining me today on the podcast. I'm so grateful that you could be here and do this today. Thank you so much. Thank you, and thanks for inviting me. I'm really, really uh, happy to be here with you today. I wanted to start out like I start out every new guest that has never been on the podcast before with hearing a little bit about your background and your story and how you got started in uh, the field that you're in now. And of course, we're doing this during what I'm calling uh, the series "Living the Dream" during COVID nineteen. So we'll talk. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that <laughs> later. And I know you and I just spent a yeah. lot of time talking before we started recording this episode. So I know that you're okay, and we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that in a yeah. bit. But um, please, um, let's start from the very beginning. Tell us where you're from originally. And how you found your way to traditional storytelling and and the love and performance of that. Okay, so originally I was born um, in a county in uh, southern England called Wiltshire. Um, and then we moved to Yorkshire, to the north of England. 
um, and I grew up really uh, between Wiltshire and, and Yorkshire. And then I um, kind of had an epiphany, basically, and moved to uh, Scotland. Um, and was your- <laughs> it was really when I moved to Scotland. What was your epiphany when you said? What was my what? Sorry. <laughs> yeah. What? When was your epiphany? Um, my epiphany what was, was your epiphany? My epiphany was um, I was just I just needed to become a storyteller and I had to go to Scotland and that was that. Um, and um, I'd I'd come out of a, a long term relationship and um, I think that is obviously a big trigger for people to make change anyway. Um, and I'd got friends in Scotland and I was spending more and more time there and um, it just ha- I just had to go. I just had to do it. And I, I got to Scotland um, and uh, slept for 12 hours, got up, and it was January the 5th, so it was thick with snow, and um, I walked down to the Storytelling Centre and started my new life. And that's basically a, neat, a really quick way of explaining it. Um, and I just went and I just listened and listened and listened um, and was very lucky to be um, mentored and and kind of welcomed by a plethora of amazing people and traditional storytellers and um, I just cut my teeth you know just listened and listened and then after several, a, a good fair few months I think um, kind of thought right I feel like I should really dive in and start telling myself and um, and that's really how it it really started and that was about oh I think it was about 12 years ago um, that that happened um and that was the when start you, of it yeah when would when did you first experience traditional storytelling were you a child or like it was later on I when think, you were an adult I think more thoroughly obviously when that happened I, I was experiencing it in a really condensed way in a in a everyday trying to listen to something type of way but growing up my my grands, both my grandmothers and my mum are brilliant kind of natural storytellers, you know. So I grew up, um, we didn't kind of grow up sitting around a fire in a, in a you know, a postcard cottage type environment, you know. But we did grow up hearing lots of family stories because I've got a really big family. So the first stories that I was um, aware of were, fa- were stories to do with the people around me. You know, like my uncles and my mum when they were young growing up and there were kind of family stories that were kind of indented, you know, and always got mentioned and repeated. So I think that's the the earlier ones, you know, are more to do with, with family things rather than external stories, you know, being told. But that's where I think I got my timing from and my um, my love of listening to stories about other people, you know, was I think from that and that would have been um I think it's interesting when you're a a traditional storyteller you can look back you don't know at the time but now I can look back and I can connect with two or three really strong threads that led me to where I am now so one of them is remembering listening to my mum talking about her brothers and her sisters and one is definitely listening to um my grands both of my grands and then um at school is the next thread, you know, when I was a little bit older and I was starting to think independently, you know. Now, did you know about traditional storytelling as career or as a job? You know, when did you first discover that? Or, and maybe this is a good time to sort of um, define traditional storytelling as well for folks who might not know. Yeah. So, um, 
it was really when I was in just, I would say about 20 years ago, I recognized that a lot of um, theatrical, you know, I was always aware that people were telling stories, whether through through different mediums, such as, you know, acting or theater or film or whatever they were doing, or, you know, obviously through literature. So I was always aware of the stories. Um, but I think I got taught very well when I moved to Scotland about the necessity of traditional storytelling and why that's so important and what that actually means and the ethos of it. So I think it's a difference in ethos with traditional storytelling in the sense that it's about information that is going to be retold after you've gone. So I think the... Mm. The way to explain it best, the difference is because the word storyteller gets brandished around and it covers such a huge plethora of things that the way to look at it is that if somebody's an actor, they can tell a story, they can portray a story and a character through all different ways and means. And you'll know all about that um, as your skill, you know, and my sister's an actress and I know lots of lots of actors. So I understand that in a way a little bit. Um a filmmaker can be a storyteller, but they're a filmmaker. That's their title first, and the clues in the title. They're a filmmaker who is storytelling. They're an actor who is storytelling. They're a producer who is storytelling. They're a writer who is storytelling. When you're a traditional storyteller, the word storyteller comes first. Mm. So the word story comes first. That's your role. Um, it's not I'm a person, you know, it's not like I'm a I'm a grocer who's a storyteller. I'm a dentist who's a storyteller. I'm a storyteller. So the word story comes first. And that's the ethos of traditional storytelling is that it's always about the story and it's always about the listener. And that's your grounding, you know, and it's about information that has gone way, way, way before you and been carried through orally through the generations over sometimes hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And you are you are repeating that information. So it's the information is important, you know, um, and then you're you're retelling that story with a view to the listener retelling it. And that way, the story is not dying because when a story stops being told, it, it dies. And it only takes really one or two generations to stop doing something for a tradition to stop or a story to stop being told. And then it's gone and it's lost, you know. So all those little nuances and, and ways of saying words and the localized indents that stories um gather when they're being retold in the place that they're told is lost so with a story going you lose the name of local um sites you lose the name of a local tree a local river a local spot a local person so it's all to do with repeating information you know so the ethos of traditional storytelling is that a story is a gift you gift a story out to the listener and the listener then will repeat not necessarily every listener repeats every story that they hear obviously um but it's always the ethos is always give gifting out you know and that is i think the best way i can describe the difference between 
being a traditional storyteller and being somebody who happens to tell a story. Mm -hmm. I like that. Does that make sense? I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And again, the thing that I always remember from, from coming and, and listening to you and then starting to learn from, from you, the process and what it's all about was, uh, the thing that stood out most in my mind was always the piece about this traditional storytelling. Like you said, it's about the story and it's about the listener, not about the storyteller. It's so often about us, <laughs> um, you know, yeah. as actors or, or here in this, yeah. in this country, you know, when we're thinking about story, it's about, you know, the performance being given and the performer versus the, the listener. Or yeah. The and there are, you know, saying that, just touching on that, Christina, there are some really fabulous traditional storytellers who have a really strong background in theatre and drama and artistic performance. And they tend to do these big kind of, um, you know, one-person saga performances. And that's all well and good, but it's I'm not of that ilk. I don't kind of – I enjoy it for what it is, but to me I'm more of a, a – a, tr- a traditional kind of fireside teller, just tell the story, you know, just give the information simply, just provide the information, pass it on, gift the story out. You don't need to have a 3K rig and a microphone and lights and costumes and all these other things because all of those things, although they're amazing and they're important, they detract from the story. The only thing that's important is the story. Mm-hmm. And when mm-hmm. you strip it down to its bare bones like that, it doesn't matter where it's told. The story belongs in the place that it's being told at the time. So that's why I can sit here in Arizona and tell a story from the other side of the world, but it belongs here because I'm telling it here. And it belongs to the listener, wherever that listener is. You know, so it's there's so many layers to it but basically for me personally i know everybody's different but for me personally and and the storytellers that i aspire to be more like or you know to to gain you know at least some of their kind of knowledge and skills are very basic storytellers they just stand there and they tell the story and that's that you know Mm -hmm. so let's go back to the epiphany that you had so prior to the to the epiphany you hadn't planned on having a life in the theater or in film or television or um, that wasn't sort of the path. Not really. I kind on, of I'm did, assuming. but in the back. Yeah, it was a funny one because I'd spent the, the, the kind of the majority of my adult life helping other people to do that. So, you know, I was a, a, a freelance press officer and I covered film festivals and I interviewed actors and things like that and directors and I was a theatrical press officer and I promoted other people you know and what they did and I organized helped organize music festivals and was press officer for that and things so I always was the person behind doing the pushing and the supporting and the helping and that's great in one way but it leaves you a bit hollow in another way because I, I wasn't actively pursuing what I was meant to do I was um I was helping other people pursue what they wanted to do which is fine um but the epiphany was like right I've I'm now actually going to focus on myself you know and it was it was a kind of it was a self-worth moment you know it was like how many hours do you want to spend helping other people 
and not getting that much back from it you know because uh, you know when you're doing press work and things like that you you're only as good as the story that gets printed or gets covered and everybody's really happy about that but then you're not these people you know it's it, it's not that fulfilling it's interesting and I learned a lot and I was and I was pretty good at it at points you know but um and I created a lot of a, a lot of attention for people to put bums on seats you know which is hard you'll know it's it's hard to drag people to the theater you know and mm-hmm. it's hard to to get people to turn up and buy a ticket you know so it takes a lot of work to get a full house and and you know get free publicity and talk people into printing a story about something you know um and you're always kind of like now everything on the news on the news is is covid obviously that Mm-hmm. what else or anything else that's happening in the world isn't getting uh talked about you know so we're kind of gonna have after this is over we're gonna have a backlog of news to catch up on you know and some things will just get totally buried but um so that's what happened and that's why i, I wanted to move and just really purify what i wanted to do and focus on myself i had a degree to finish so i moved the degree to where i was going and um, finished it there and just listened and actually um well I think I consider story what I did for me as providing myself with the best education I could and listening to stories provides you with a very privileged education and that is my real education so I provided myself I gifted myself a a real education and that's how I looked at it yeah I like that that's beautiful what did that study look like? How did you start as a new traditional storyteller and uh, learn the craft? Um, listening. Um, listening, listening, listening. Um, and that's still kind of ongoing. I'm always looking for things to, you know, people to listen to. But it starts by basically turning up and listening. And that's it for for, for a long time and for it. As long as you're alive, you know, you've got to keep listening. Um, And then starting to practice telling, you know, starting to get used to speaking in different rooms and talking to people you don't know. and, and, And also getting used to not being too nervous if you're being listened to by a master storyteller or you're somebody who you look up to, you know, um, and other, the others, because storytellers to me are like rock stars, you know? So I just, Mm -hmm. I just, I just kind of love them all and I'm really affected by them. And I just, you know, to me, they are rock stars, you know, and there's people who are very established traditional storytellers and they're just, to me, it's just amazing. And I'm, you know, it's, so listening, 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 listening to what they tell you, listen to how they do things. Um, but then at the same time, defining, a a style of your own and a way that you're comfy with. And I think the key is with stories is not to tell a story for the sake of it. A story's got to sit with you and um, it's got stories are like cats, you know, they'll jump up on your lap. A story finds you before you, you find it, you know, and you can listen to 20 stories and maybe not have any that you feel that are yours to retell or that you'd like to retell. And then another night you could sit and listen to five stories and two will just be on your lap and you'll just think, wow, I want to retell those two stories, you know, and for some reason they'll speak to you. So it's a case of 
practically and pragmatically turning up at whatever event's going on, wherever it is, and listening, respecting the teller, sitting and listening, and then letting the story sink in, um, and then trying to listen to it again. You know, there's a couple of stories that I would are on the back burner for me to tell, but I've only maybe heard them uh, once or twice, and that's spread out over many years. So um, it's just uh, the pragmatic, practical aspect of it is listening and then practicing retelling and then getting used to being in different rooms and, and being able to sense the moment and know what story to tell or what or know when to change your plans because the the room is you know, different to how you expected and the people in it are, you know, it's just a different vibe. So you maybe plan on telling the story and when you get there, you ditch it and just tell another one off the off the cuff because it suits the moment better. Um, and it's all that, all those kind of relaxed things take time and um, you've just got to let it happen at your own pace and gradually and not force it and not tell. I think what it boils down to just tell the story that you want to tell, that you enjoy, and that speaks to you. Don't force it, and don't ever tell a story that you don't love, because if you tell a story that you don't like, you feel it. You know that you're telling a story that you don't love, and it, it's a really awful feeling. That's happened to me once, and I vowed I would never do it again. So it's and that kind of connecting in with that stream of consciousness and 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 what other people are doing takes just takes time and um you just get into your own rhythm of listening and telling and just being relaxed with it and not worrying and it take it's like any craft it takes time not to worry you know so it's just gradually building up and getting confidence and then just just telling and not being um not being too precious about it because it's not your story you don't own it you're looking after it and it's everybody's story because the you know the word folk tale the word folk means people these are our stories you know so it's it's just a case of clicking into that rhythm and not not snatching and thinking oh I've got to tell I've got to tell every single story in the world and I've got to know it like backwards and know all the sagas and all the myths and all the legends and that's never going to happen you know so you've just got to you know dip in and 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 tell a story when it speaks to you and when it's right and you know there are still loads of stories that I know and I'm aware of but I don't want to tell them I want to listen to them you know, I still want to hear somebody telling me it, you know, but it's not mine to tell. And I think it's a case of building up enough, not expertise, but enough awareness to know what's appropriate to tell. And when you're just meant to be a listener and that, you know, it here is easy to define because, for example, I would never tell a, a traditional um, Native American story because they're not my stories to tell. Those stories are living is part of a living culture and they tell stories at specific times of the year for very specific things and they're very precious so but I would you know I'd happily I can listen but it's not for me to retell it would be disrespectful for me to do that and the same with some other stories from other places in the world you wouldn't you know they're not yours to retell but you can really enjoy listening to them and they're very beautiful you know so it's a, a case of knowing what not to tell as much as it is knowing what to tell and where to tell it 
um, and when to change it, you know, and maybe drop the idea because you realise that it's not quite right for that specific moment in time, you know. And all these things just take practice. So it's just like any instrument, anything, you know, like you'll know this with your acting, that you just, you know, you've got to keep doing it. You've got to keep listening, 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 retelling. And you can tell a story like four or five different different ways you know every time you tell it it's going to be slightly different so it's allowing for that and being loose with that and not you know not kind of going with it at the time and and not being overly kind of precious about it and you don't have to be word story perfect every time with a traditional story you just have to remember the bones of the story and the key components you know, and as long as you've got that and you're passing on that information and retelling it, then that's the main thing. You know, whether you paused in the right place or you maybe, you know, gave a shorter sentence or a longer sentence or you embroidered it is irrelevant. But you've got a responsibility as a traditional storyteller to retain the bones and the information within that tale that is important for its retelling you're always thinking about what the listener's going to do with it rather than how they're going to receive your performance of it and that's the difference it's an, a difference in etiquette and a difference in ethos I think but that all takes time and you're never as good as you want to be you're always you know I'm always still in awe of the traditional storytellers that I know and, and really love you know I'm completely in awe of them I love their their dialects and the way they pronounce their words and their styles and their different little nuances that they have. And, you know, and I, and I love that diversity about it, you know, so I'm always wanting to listen, you know, and I think that's a gift and it it's a gift storytelling and it should be received and, and gifted out. And um, you don't really meet many unhappy storytellers. You meet storytellers who have got stuff going on, you know, they're never unhappy about being a storyteller. (laughs) It's not never going to happen. Yes. Well, and I'd like to say that I'm in awe of you. So uh, you you may be in awe of others, but others are also in awe of you and your sound and your tone. And you really weave a spell when you're telling a story and draw everyone in. And I just thank you. Yeah. It's just constant practice just wanted to let you know that you're welcome (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah um so uh for this audience claire if you could tell us a little bit about well first of all uh what was the most challenging thing about first starting out and learning to tell stories in the beginning um i think just basic uh, confidence and basic the thing is because I st- I started practicing properly in, in Scotland before then I'd written my own stories and, and done all these other things but when I actually properly started the, learning about the all these things my dialect obviously I've got an English accent I'm not Scottish and I was very, always very aware of that and I was always really nervous about um, mispronouncing a word, you know, or if I mispronounced a surname, I got really upset, you know, and um, I was always very aware of my difference in speech and things like that, even though I was in awe of everybody around me and I, who I was listening to. Um, I was very self-aware of how I sounded and how it came across. And that, again, I think just boils down to practice and kind of you know 
getting over those fears and those silly little ego gremlins and things like that and just dropping it and just getting on with being the story and trusting that the people around you actually want to hear that story and, and don't mind and are all right with it you know but the you know so I think that was the biggest challenge really for me and um I seem to always go to towards turbulent political times when I'm so I moved to Scotland when um the kind of the independence question was really raving and um you know it was a really heightened atmosphere in Scotland at the time um understandably um and I was very aware of that and trying to understand that and it was a it was actually a really amazing place to be during that time because it allowed me to really understand those differences in culture and why they're important and why they mean so much um and then obviously I'm now I'm here in America and we've got you know whatever we've got politically going on and um so but I always treat it as that I'm on a research sabbatical and I think that's a good way to look at Mm -hmm. where you are and Mm -hmm. what the situation that you're in but I do remember being very over uh, overwhelmed and getting really upset and really telling myself off and beating myself up if I got a story wrong or if I if I went wrong or if it was if it didn't come out exactly the same way as how I'd been practicing it I was kind of mortified and it took time to just loosen up you know and I think that's just huge that's normal you know but it's that's that's what I remember is being very, very aware of my pronunciation of words um, and, and getting it wrong, you know, getting a word wrong or making a mistake in a story. I used to get very, you know, it was to me, my mind had completely failed and I was an idiot. And why was I even bothering? And, you know, forget it. But that I think everybody goes through that. And you've just got to carry on and believe in yourself and be and follow your instincts, you know, because if your instincts are telling you something's right, you feel it. And as long as you go with that, you're going to be all right. You know, all the rest of it is superficial fluff and rubbish, you know, but just keep on with your instincts and, you know, it'll be all right. And that's what I had to do, you know. Um, but yeah, it's it's nerve wracking, I think, when you're surrounded by people who you think are amazing and you tell them a story and they're all just sat there and you can't tell how people, sometimes people are listening, but they look really serious, you know, and it's <laughs> It can be like, oh, God, you know, they don't, they don't like it, you know, whatever. And then they come up to you afterwards and they say, oh, thanks so much. I really enjoyed that. And I do it myself. I frown um, or I look down at the floor when I'm listening. I'm not looking at the person who's telling because I'm listening, you know, and it can be quite um, overwhelming when you look out and everybody's just looks a bit kind of straight faced and a bit, you know, and <laughs> so I always yes. made it up by when I was ever listening to somebody, I'd always smile and make sure I was making eye contact with them as a listener because I knew it would yes. maybe make them feel a bit better. <laughs> yeah. Right, being a helpful audience member. Yeah. Or be, and being yeah. a helpful listener, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I know what you're talking about though, because I had that experience when I got up and told the story about my grandmother. And I had that feeling, that same. Oh, yeah. That was a lovely story. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, but it was like, I was mm. like, okay, I'm just going to keep going. Yeah. I I had yeah. no notes. <laughs> I was preparing from my, I was, I was trying, uh, focusing really hard on this idea of making it about the story and making it about the listener. And I was, even though it was autobiographical, yeah. I was putting it in third person and trying to do that as I went along. And, and I basically knew what I wanted to tell that I also was partly theatrical because that's my training, but I was also 
trying to adjust, you know, to the setting and the and the yeah, it was an interesting exercise, yeah, genre, yeah, and then also looking out at everyone and going, okay, are they are they with me? Are they bored? (laughs) Do they not know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one that's feeling something right now? Like what is happening? (laughs) Yeah, but you know what was really. Yeah, yeah, and it was it was remarkable, and that thing that you say again that it's obvious to me, and maybe I just have skipped over it. That I'll just mention now for anybody who's listening is this thing of no notes, because as a traditional story or it's storyteller, it's by memory. You know, everything's mm-hmm. by memory. You don't you don't would never read a story or read a poem. It's you recite a poem and you tell a story, so you would never read it anyway. But I remember you doing that, and I remember kind of. Um, listening and the thing that I uh, remember when you told that story was you had these really striking images of the red cardinals and the birds in that story and that regardless of how you were feeling and what you were doing for us as listeners that really was striking in our mind's eye because we were what we were seeing those birds the you know, and we were the seeing the room with the girl looking out of the window, looking at those birds at that kind of moment where it became a sign, you know, or symbolic of what was happening in the story at the time. But, but yeah, it was. Um, I think it was a, an interesting exercise, and you did. I mean, you were you. It was beautiful to listen to, you know. So, you you. you got it, and I think I really appreciate what you were doing as well because. You, because you've got your background is so crafted and you've obviously trained in that for so long and had a lot of experience, it it would have been hard for you to try and tweak that and move it a little bit, you know? So I think it's an interesting exercise uh, to do, but um, as a listener, it was, you know, it was lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, also, Claire, talk to us about, for those who don't know, the types of settings that traditional storytelling happens in this was surprising to me uh, personally okay so um because so again, stories thinking, happen where they're told traditional theater, you know i'm thinking like, like you said before lights makeup maybe a costume a setting but this was <laughs> not like that at all when you were describing it to me no I, well i mean th- there are stories they're people stories so they happen wherever people are in their domestic locations or where they gather so stories traditional stories happen in pubs in houses in halls in a field under a tree wherever people gather is where the stories taking place you know and um sometimes storytelling environments can be really noisy you know if you're in a pub and you're listening to somebody telling a story which is the for me the best place to listen to a story is in the pub well, right, because a, a couple of drinks and everyone sounds great. Yeah, and it's just great. And, um, you know, you're all sat around and everybody's just, you know, coming up with a story and telling – and it's I love that so much. And um, But there's loads of stuff going on in the background. There's the whole pub full of people and there might be a, mu- a musician playing in the corner and people at the bar and everything. But So story traditional stories happen where they get told. And that's the beauty of them. And if you think about how stories travel, because people travel. So wherever people travel, the stories go with them. And that's how stories spread and get adapted and become, um, you know, reimagined and retold in different locations. But those stories belong wherever they're told. So you can have a story that's being told in somewhere in Europe or in Russia, 
and it mirrors an exact story that's being told on the other side of the world. It's just in a different location, but it's the, the threads of it are the same story. You know, as human beings, we've only got so many ideas, you know. We've only got so many plots, and inevitably, you know, we all go back to the originals, you know. Inevitably, they all go back to the to the Greek or, or old, you know, or older and or Mesopotamia and all these places. And we've only got so many ideas as humans, you know. We replicate ourselves quite handily, you know. Like music, there's only so many notes, but think of how many songs there are. It's the same for stories. Mm. I like that. So the other thing to... Although it sounds really obvious, it, it might be uh, an obvious statement, but stories took place prior to televisions and radios and the internet. So that's why mm. stories happened wherever they got told, because people had to entertain themselves. And how did they do it? Well, they did it by telling stories and singing songs and reciting poems. And um, that was a form of news. So storytellers traveled from place to place, passing stories which were kind of they were like walking newspapers so um we we revert to stories you know very quickly as humans you know if suddenly all the plugs stopped working and there was no rechargeable um, opportunities within i can guarantee you within hours everybody would be started to tell stories because what else do you do you know Mm -hmm. we revert to it as humans it's in our dna you know once upon a time you're in you know it's and i think that's important to remember is that storytelling and events and these communal events took place because they were forms of entertainment and a form of a gathering you know it's just what we did to entertain ourselves whereas now in 2020 we go onto our phones or we go onto our facebook or whatever or we go and watch Netflix or whatever. So these are just the original, this is the, storytelling is the original Netflix. You know, it's what we do to entertain right. ourselves as humans. So so that's where it, you know, that's, that's why it's been so important and repeated. And people basically getting together and making an evening out of nothing. Well, what can you do? Well, I'll sing a song. Well, I've got the joke. Well, I've got this story and uh, whatever. You know, so you make something gets created and you entertain each other where you know before there was nothing and if you don't have any technology you're not all going to gather or sit around as a family just staring at the floor not saying anything you know so when your basic daily discussions are out of the way you want to entertain yourself in some way you know and divert yourself in some way and that's so that's why stories happen where they're told you know because then they're natural to us you know it's just what we do as humans what would you say is the, what's been the highlight so far for you in this, after you went in this direction and, and followed that, that call to be a, a traditional storyteller? I think there's been many, but I think on a personal level, the highlight is the sense of happiness that it's given me, you know, very naturally and um, mm. a sense of, of being educated, you know, and um, of of the sense of of wonder and awe that it's created and looking the way that you look at the world and the etiquette of of welcoming people that you don't know and who are different to you and um the bridge building that it creates and the 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 peacemaking opportunities that come through storytelling you know and it's stories are like a bridge for people like a neutral bridge a neutral platform and um that's been the most rewarding 
I think is the sense of just this, the, the sense of that these things are gifts and that they there's something that takes place through traditional storytelling that is um, a he it's a it's a heals stories are, are healing things just listening to a story um, is healing and um, I think that's been the most rewarding is the way that personally it's enabled me to progress as a person and the way that I look at the world now is is feels different it feels calmer and it feels like it makes more sense you know even though there's still the riddles and the intricacies of different stories and information for me as a person things make more sense um so that's been the most rewarding thing and also being able to Obviously, being able to help other people and use storytelling as a tool to assist them, you know, either in their recovery or um, or going through whatever they're doing, um, they're going through, you know, that's very rewarding. Um, but, you know, there are, there's different types of rewards. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that uh, healing aspect and, and what you did were using storytelling for? Yeah, so traditional storytellers use stories as as healing tools so um for example um if a you know i've worked in prisons and i've worked for drug addicts and i've worked with you know um detached groups of teenagers who are very kind of disassociated and and bit unruly and, and different groups um and you find that there's a you um there's a way of using storytelling to kind of create that same calmness that I've experienced that I feel through it and passing that on and also by providing people with you know not everybody's good at um social conduct not everybody feels that they've got a voice or that they can speak um and stories particularly traditional stories provide that neutral platform for people to listen and reassess their own reality and compare without it actually being about them and without it actually affecting anything around them um so and it it enables them to progress through that state of mind and that thought process and move on in their own minds so the work that a listener does in their mind's eye is imperative to the healing process of listening to a story and we do it as humans without even knowing that we're doing it. It's just something that occurs when we're listening. And that work that your brain does when it's creating the picture that you see in your mind's eye, which is your purest truth, because nobody can tell you what you see in your mind's eye when you're hearing a story is not right because it's your mind's eye, mm-hmm. um, is doing the work that doesn't get done when you're looking at a visual stimulant. So if you're looking at a picture or if you're looking at a film, so an information that's provided to you, it's doing all the work for your brain. Your brain doesn't have to do any work. It doesn't have to create a different picture because it's got it. It's being, it's like a picture is um, fast food and a story is a cauldron that is gradually getting ingredients added and becomes richer and richer and your mind is doing the work. A, a visual is just telling you there's your information 
So your actual brain, whilst you're listening to a story, is working in different parts and working in a different way to how it normally has to. And that's why listening is key to everything. So that's how stories heal. And when you use a traditional story in a group in a group of people that are recovering addicts or who are vulnerable in any way or who are struggling or are in a situation that hopefully they're going to come out of and, and get some change from it and move on in a more positive way with their life or whatever, um, they need those examples and those examples come through all our folk tales and our myths and our legends of problem solving, you know, and good luck, bad luck, and overcoming, overcoming, carrying on the hero's journey, moving forward, learning from mistakes, it being all right. And a story um, can create that whole world without the listener having to go anywhere. So that's why traditional storytelling, I would say, is um is so imperative if you think about it when you're telling somebody about a world that they're already aware of in a time frame they're already aware of um without any extra information it's kind of there's no progression in that it yeah sure you can raise empathy but we've all got empathy unless we're a sociopath so if you tick a box when you're walking in to say you've got empathy you're a grown adult and you're not a sociopath that job's done forget it you tick the box move into story and do that higher form of listening and progression Um, and so that's why listening to information that you're already aware of about a situation yeah it creates empathy but it but there are so many more other things you know and um so i think working with traditional stories around people in particular settings and of different groups are really invaluable because it allows them to create a space where they can speak um, and question the unknown and the what if. Because if you've got a what if, you've got a possibility. And where there's possibility, there's hope. And where there's hope, there can be change. But you've got to get over those thought processes to get that movement. Um, And that's what traditional storytellings provide. They provide the possibility of the what if and the possibility for personal and communal movement, you know. So um, Mm -hmm. I think that's why they're important and that's how they can be used, Um, you know. And not everybody wants to sit around. When you've, say, if you're working with a group of recovering addicts, they're having counselling, they're having those intense personal conversations and working through those things with their actual medical counsellors. So story provides a way of them looking ahead of looking towards the future of what could be of the what if and it provides like a beacon of light at the end of this long dark tunnel there's this light and it's this what if you know there is possibility there is room for change here you know and you're the person who can create that change and by gifting people different examples through different stories then they think oh well I'm the guy in that story I'm the girl in that story there's this possibility and this is also really important. When folk tales and fairy tales have been gentrified over the years, we've re- been repeating this negative message to girls for years and years now is that their worth is different to a boy's worth and that they are objects that are to be bartered with and gifted away as prizes. 
And so my thing for a few years now has been about that and about when you're storytelling traditional stories, the, it, the ending doesn't always have to be. And the prince asked the king if he could marry the, his daughter and the king said, yeah. That's actually a really worn out dinosaur message. You know, you can tweak that. You can have the same bones of the fairy tale, but at the end, you know what happens? The prince might ask the princess to marry him or the girl to marry him, and she says, no, I'm going to go around the world and get a PhD, but we'll stay friends and everything's cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know? Yes. So what you say in these stories and how you end them is really inductive of how people perceive their roles um, as individuals. So, you know, when he asks the girl to marry him, the princess says, thanks very much. That's really sweet. But I was planning on going to university and then I wanted to do a master's and then I wanted to take a gap year or a few years out to travel. But, hey, let's write to each other. And those two, they stayed friends forever and they had so many adventures. They had a fabulous time. And where, where they are now, who knows? But that's just a, a, a posi- uh, as positive an ending to a fairy tale then. And then the guy who'd killed the dragon asked the king if he could take his daughter and the king said, yeah. So within these stories, I'd say traditional storytellers are activists and we're activists because we're aware of how information can be perceived and how influential it is. Find that when you tweak the end of a story like that, you can feel all the parents in the room if you're storytelling with mixed group, age groups and families and things. You can really feel, really you can feel all the mums in the room, but really all the parents going, oh, thank you, you know, because they want better messages for their kids as well. You know, they don't want their little girl growing up thinking that. You know, they're looking for these. And look how, look how um, you know, popular any story or film is that really throws the girls into the hero's role. You know, the girls love it. You know, they love it and they need that and they are warranted to receive that information. But if they're told right from the beginning, you're a piece of property and your job is to scream and be carried and rescued and then gifted away, what do you expect them to think of themselves? So it's really powerful traditional mm-hmm. storytelling, and exactly. it's an example of the human, um, you know, outlook and how we conduct ourselves through alternative examples. You know, because this time displacement, this movement of time and situation and surrounding creates the what if, and it's the what if is the key to the healing aspects of storytelling. You know. David Campbell mentioned this the other day on an interview, but I say this a lot to people, is that, you know, when Einstein asked how to create clever children, he told them they must listen to stories. And then they said, yeah, but how do you make them really clever like you? And he said, tell them to listen to more stories. You know, because it's the what if. You know, you've got to have the eureka, the what if moment comes from the unknown and the new possibility. Yes. So you only get that through being told things that you haven't perceived before, that you've got no awareness of. You know. I'd like to talk now about this shared story that we're all experiencing with uh, COVID nineteen, and yeah, you know, how are you doing? How are you okay? How are you coping with everything that's happening right now? And uh, what are you doing to stay sane? <sighs> Yeah, that's a, a, a good question. What are any of us doing? Stay sane. Um, um, comedy, lots of comedy. Um, and 
for me, it's it's a peculiar position because I'm here in America. I my family are in the UK, so um, I couldn't get to them if I tried at the moment. You know, um, because I wouldn't be able be able to fly. You know, so mm-hmm. I'm kind of aware of that, and because I'm aware of that, yeah, and that I think that feeling when you when you dwell on that for long, it makes you feel a bit a bit shaky and a bit like oh you know like oh no, I don't like it I don't like it but you know I think just um I'm checking in with them you know we're messaging each other a lot and I'm kind of speaking to my mum pretty much every other day and kind of checking in with my dad now and again and you know and thinking about them and checking in with people and um that's all you can do you know you've got just got to stay checking in with people um um, just sometimes, you know, you just need to just talk to your mates and have a laugh, you know, and, and it brings you down to earth. Um, I'm not, I'm obviously just going out to do uh, basic shopping, just essential shopping. Um, and we're, we're doing okay. I've noticed that um, I'm tired, you know, um, I'm a lot tireder than normal. And I think that's the emotion. And um, I've been in a position where me and my husband were on the other side of the world from each other for about a year and a half. Um, and we were both exhausted all the time. So we we know this feeling. So that's maybe making it a little bit easier for us to understand that we understand why we're tired because your mind is dealing with this big subject and yet life is going on as normal. So it's got to be processed somehow. And I think it comes out by feeling tired. Um, so I'm just trying to go easy um, and just get on with positive things i've been recording some stories down by the creek which i've enjoyed and i hope people get some pleasant diversion from listening to that and that's been a nice feeling to do that um and just trying to to when you feel tense and when it kind of feels a bit overwhelming because it's a bit like an unseen monster isn't it you can't see this you know, I'm sat here in Sedona. It's absolutely stunningly beautiful. The sky's blue, perfect time of year. It's absolutely beautiful. And yet there's this monster outside the door that I can't see, you know. And um, so how do you deal with that monster? Well, you're aware that it's there, but you just get on with it because what else can you do, you know? So I'm just kind of, I'm not too bad I'm having a couple of days where I'm really grumpy for no reason or I'm saying bizarre things and acting a little bit you know a bit reactive um bit bit schizophrenic <laughs> on the Facebook as I was saying earlier to you like one minute it's all fluffy bunnies and the next minute it's like ah you know um but I think you know that's just yeah <laughs> that's you know it's it's just good look bad look all day you know you're up and down all day and um you just got to center yourself and breathe and do things that work for you. You know, at the moment, there's lots of people giving advice out about what to do. And I think it's good. That's really helpful. But inevitably, just go with what you what makes you feel all right. And, you know, I'm concerned about elderly people who are isolated at the moment, you know, because we can't see them because they're just in. Um, and I'm really worried about that. I know in the UK, it's not pleasant and warm like it is here. You know, there's going to be lots of elderly people who don't like asking for help in the first place, you know, who don't, who daren't ask for help because they just see it as they're not allowed to. And I'm really worried about the aftermath of people who have just been left and fallen through the net. That's my concern. I'm all right. You know, I'm all right. I'm comfortable. I've got a roof over my head. I've got a bed. I've got food. Um, I've got people around me I can speak to and um, 
you know, nice friends here, people like yourself and people that I, I know that I feel comfy, I can ring and say, oh, I'm just kind of, you know, just have a chat with and feel better. But not everybody's got that. And it's those people that I'm thinking about, you know, who, what are we going to find after this? You know, when we can go in other people's houses, what are we going to find? You know, and that's my concern is that the the powers that be are not making um, enough effort to look after the elderly population and really know where they are and check up on them and provide them meals on wheels and people to go around and check how they're doing. And I think that's going to be an issue when this is uh, when this is over. You know, hopefully it will be over at some point. But that's my main concern is mm-hmm. people who are kind of vulnerable yeah. and elderly and yeah, I know I'm there really are worried programs about out there and, and community groups. My sister is a social worker and she's working with specifically the uh, immigrant population, not the elderly population, but uh, those folks are on her radar as yeah. well. So I know uh, a friend of mine, we were, you know, was really thinking that as and having that same concern, especially right in the beginning, she was concerned about folks going into the grocery store and exposing themselves, you know, or needing help or it not being an easy and quick process to go to the grocery store yeah. normally and, you know, do that quickly or easily. And now with everything else happening, them trying to navigate that and that right away, that's when the, you know, stores started doing the hours that were specifically for uh you know retirees and up be in the first early parts of the day before other people could go shopping so yeah. that, i know things like that helped and that certainly uh you know groups like me wheels yeah. and things like that are going to be thinking about that but um yeah, I just we you know this again is this is a huge story for all of us simultaneously. You know, another guest was saying they really were looking at this as a uh, Scott Coopwood was talking about it as a collective trauma, and I think that's a perfect word. I think that's yeah. a great way to put it because we may not know anyone who's sick, we may not be sick, we may not be on the front lines or necessarily be connected to someone on the front lines of dealing with those who are ill and working in hospitals, et cetera, but we're all being affected on some level, you know, emotionally yeah, and mentally. Definitely. Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? When you look back to the collective trauma, like in times of war, uh, specifically World War Two, the people at that time, we know looking back how that story ended, but the people at the time, they didn't know how that story was going to end. You know, like we we don't now. We do, and I think it is a collective trauma. But this is how they felt. They didn't know um, when a bomb was going to drop, or if they were going to see their um, loved ones again, or you know, if they were going to live or die, or what was going to happen to their country or their identity, or were they going to be dragged away and all the horrific other things. But uh, you know, it's we know looking back how stories end, and at the moment, the collective trauma comes from being in, in an unpredictable. Um, situation doesn't it and that's the collective trauma is um this need to kind of get a conclusion what's the end of this story when's it going to finish you know and we just don't know and i think it's important to just go with it and breathe and drop into to this and not have this rush 
to get back to normal and this this kind of, oh, we've got to do this. We don't have to do anything, actually. We just have to save as many lives as possible and learn as much as we can. Um, an economy will can restart again. There's something called the printing press where we print money and um, anybody who studied the economy and, and done a degree or a master's in it will tell you inevitably it boils down to the printing press and you know it's going to be all right it'll take some time but inevitably um you know this rush of wanting the conclusion is in is in itself a form of denial you know it's like this isn't happening get this over with as quickly as possible um and it's not always the best you can't rush you know oh yeah yeah the protests and etc yeah, well, those are the type of people who've never had to sacrifice anything. They don't understand sacrifice. They don't understand how to not be mm. self-entitled because they've never lived through anything that created sacrifice. So they don't have it as an ethos because um, they just spoil, you know. So they're self-entitled and full of rights and this is my right. Well, is it is it your right? How do you know that? How was that right created? It was created through blood and sweat and tears and torment and a long history of struggle um, for you to have those rights. And the people that went before you sacrificed a great deal in order for you to be stood there like an idiot demanding a haircut. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, or demanding that a health worker is a virus and stopping them from getting to a hospital to help somebody that you might just know. You might be the person in the bed that day who isn't helped as quickly because there were a load of idiots stopping that health worker getting in their car and getting to the hospital. And I'm just absolutely disgusted and appalled and disgraced by that behaviour because it's the epitome of a self-entitled, spoiled brat who has never had to sacrifice anything, really. They don't understand self-sacrifice. They're just all about themselves and what they want, what they need. Well, they don't want or need anything, actually. They just need to make sure they've, you know, got a bed, got some food in. It's going to be all right. Just need to get it sorted out. But, you know, I think it's it brings out the best and the worst in people, unfortunately. But we're seeing so much of the best in people, and that... 12% or tiny, tiny minority, unfortunately, get far too much attention. And then it grows and people think, oh, that's how everybody thinks. And it's just not. You know, people are good and they're kind and they're full of great, wonderful things. And times like this, it's just be kind. You know, just be kind. Think about others. Listen to stories. Think about other people and just gift out, you know, and um, don't grab and shout about what you want because now's not the time. You know? I liked what you were saying speaking about what what the time is now. When we were talking earlier, we were talking about on one hand people are struggling with unemployment and feeling trapped in the house, but on the other hand as a creative, we're feeling uh-huh. a sense of freedom because uh-huh. we have time to attend to <laughs> or work on projects that we have wanted to work on creatively for a long time yeah and and I think that's a positive way to look as well I mean you can what you do with your time is up to you but if you can use the time fruitfully and to think you know sometimes it's just good to have time to actually think you know to and that can only ever be positive you know and um, just go with it. You can't do anything about it. You've you've got the time, yes. so use it. You know, use it to to think and to reflect. 
and uh, I think it's a very reflective time. And, you know, is it really a prison? I mean, if you look at people who, um, you know, have been kidnapped and tortured and really kept in a prison, you know, is this is is being at home a prison? It's not. You know, it's a it's a strange mentality to be in, and I, I get that. And like you say, there is a reaction to it, kind of emotionally and things, and it is a collective trauma because people are dying and it's very serious. But within your actual home, unless you live in like a swamp or um, you know somewhere really atrocious, it's not it's not a prison. You know, you're at home. You know, get on with some stuff, plant some flowers. You know. Do do stuff, paint your city, you know, paint your walls, do whatever, but just put it into yeah. perspective, really. You know, if you're healthy and you haven't got this and you're at home, then you're not in a prison, you're safe. And you're keeping other people safe. And that's the point, you know, is that you're staying at home um to keep other people safe and yourself safe, and that's all that matters. Um, but it is a funny it's a it's a funny time, but Hopefully, like I agree with that. I think time is really valuable. I'd always value time over money. You know, time is is like gold dust. So use it, you know, and, and use it and, and use it to actually do something productive. You know, exactly. Yeah, especially you know, as artists, this is the time to be creating. This is the time to be. Well, that's what everybody falls back on. Focused on those things that we're always saying. I don't have time for that. Yeah. Yeah, but exactly. ironically, yeah, we're all falling back on it. It's it's the arts that we're falling back on. What are we falling back on? Films and music and art and stories and all those things mm-hmm. that we don't have time for. Ironically, are the things that are keeping us it together at the moment. Yes. And we all revert back to we all revert back to these essential things, and we get reminded of how essential they are. But it takes a pandemic to do it. But you know, um, all these things are are really, um, really imperative, you know, art is imperative to life, you know, and we need to just give it its due, you know, give it. And there are other worths than money, you know, money's only one worth, there are other worths. And I think it's an interesting time to reflect upon um, that fact, you know, that there are other things of worth. And if you balance and prioritize other things of worth, then suddenly life slows down. And we say, I haven't got time a lot less because we have got time and we're healthier and better for it. You know? Exactly. So, so Claire, you started Kaylee corner in Sedona, Arizona. It's a monthly opportunity for folks to come and learn about storytelling, practice their storytelling, listen to your amazing storytelling. What, uh, you know, we've talked about this before and there will be a, you know, we, there will be a return. Again, it won't look the way it looked before, but there will be a return. We, we do have a future to look forward to. It's, very easy to be in a situation like this and for folks to have a sense of this is going to be the, this is, it's going to be like this forever. (laughs) It's never going to end, but it is going to end. We are going to get back to a new normal. So um, I know you're looking forward to Kaylee corner starting up again. What else would you like to see happening uh, for uh, in the future, you know, what else are you looking forward to projects or 
um, you know, developing and being able to, to share with people when we get on the other side of all this? Well, definitely, as you say, looking forward to being able to gather, you know, in a room and share some stories. I think that would be um, the first thing that I'm looking forward to. The next Kayleigh Corner we do will be by Zoom and just going to see how that goes. The one uh, for World Storytelling Day is, you know, on the um, in March and on the 20th of March. And, and that was just a live stream event. And that was um, it was it was a it felt strange to do it because traditional storytelling is so to do with being there in the moment, listening and telling and, you know, connecting with people in the room. Um, so I'm really looking forward to doing that properly again and as gathering. Um, Cause we've got some but great budding little storytellers here. There's some amazing people and, you know, some amazing writers that are coming and using the storytelling sessions as ways to, um, you know, think about their ideas in a different way. And, and there's all sorts going on at Cayley Corner, which I'm really happy about. And it's a nice little club. I'm glad it, it's kind of ticking over and, and people are, are gelling into it and 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 getting used to to telling a story that's about something other than themselves you know like we touched on earlier and and getting that ethos going is is a really good exercise I'm really enjoying that but um I'm looking forward to just doing more and and just being able to regather with people and connect with them um you know because um and I'm going to do some bit more writing and, and think about writing projects that I've had on the back burner for a long time and just left, you know. Um, so I'm going to think about those and um, and and just think really have a I'm, – I'm looking forward to telling stories um, that reflect what's happening at the moment, you know, and I'm going to start looking for, for stories that kind of – when I've been down to the creek telling over this last week or so, I've tried to look at stories that just gently touch upon what's going on, you know, in a but not in a heavy, heavy way. And there's some really wonderful stories that reflect moments like this, you know, that we can kind of connect into. So I'm going to carry on researching them. I'm looking forward to just doing more work, really, that's relative to this. Um, I don't know how or when that will happen, but my goal is just to keep going up you know and like you say Christina when you just decide and you turn to face the direction that you want to go in as long as your instincts are telling you it's right then things will just happen anyway you know so I'm just going to keep going with it and I think I'm really happy with the storytelling that we've done here so far and I think Hayley Corner is a really sweet little club and I like the new um, centre as well you know, the, the Centre for Harmony and Enrichment is it's a really cool space. You know, I really like that room and they've been really accommodating and very helpful. So I'm glad that the club's got a place, a, a home, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm just going to look to carry on doing that, you know, and and then whatever other projects and work come off it, you know, will be, will be great. But um just slowly slowly at the moment you know like you say it's um I feel like one day I've got lots of energy and I'm thinking about all these things and planning and looking ahead and then the next day I'm just a zombie you know so I'll go up and I'm going up and down so as long as I allow for that I'm sure I'm sure eventually we'll get some good projects done you know yes yes well, Claire, we're we're glad you're here, and we're glad you're bringing storytelling to the area and teaching us about traditional storytelling. and uh, And thank you so much for today. Thank you for having this conversation, and uh, 
So glad you're here. Thank you. And thanks for inviting me. It's been lovely to hear your voice and to talk to you too. I really appreciate it. And um, good luck. And um, I hope lots of people listen to your podcasts. And um, you're, you're a lovely interviewer because you really put me, put me at ease. So, you know, it's, it's easy to be interviewed by you, Christina. Thank you. Oh, thanks, love. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're awesome. <laughs> I've ended the last several episodes talking about how we need to take care of ourselves. And I still stand by all those things. So exercising, meditating, uh, eating well, getting enough sleep. Don't stay up too late watching shows, watching television. And keep yourself on a good routine as best you can. Now, when I'm telling you these things, I'm not doing all these things perfectly. These are reminders for me too. But you know, let's even focus on the basics. Take a shower, brush your teeth, floss, not one of my favorite things, but important. Do your hair, do your hair even if no one's going to see you. If you wear makeup, maybe some days you want to put on a little makeup. Just all those things that keep you feeling a little bit sane, keep you feel in a routine, keep you feeling centered and kind of just fresh and ready to attack the day with whatever projects you're working on around the house or being creative. Give yourself some things to look forward to, some things to work on, and some things to expand yourself and keep yourself stimulated. And for those of you that are still working and have been working this whole time on the front lines at hospitals or grocery stores, Please know how grateful we are to you. Please know how grateful we are that you are taking such good care of us. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Again, thank you to Trevor Algott. Please join our private Facebook group, Living the Dream Acting with Christina Kipper. If you've been appreciating these episodes and would like to hear more, please subscribe. And please just scroll down on your phone. Just go down just a little ways. And there's a little thing that says, give us a review. And please click on that five stars. We would really appreciate your support. Again, I'm Christina Kipper. Stay safe, stay healthy, and I'll see you next week. I want the world to change its mind. Erase the labels and be kind. In a place we all belong. We're not hurting anyone I hope that peace will find its voice Carry away through all the noise If we're strong enough to speak They'll see our beauty Where do we go from here? I just need a reason to push on Tear down